Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. Every week we'll be celebrating the spirit of Manchester by speaking to somebody who's helped shape the city. This week I'm joined by artist, graphic designer and creator of some of the most iconic album covers ever, Brian Cannon. Brian describes what it felt like to get caught up in the buzz of Oasis mania. It was mayhem, you know, just the sight of Liam Gallagher would create carnage. And he'll tell us about the idea behind the artwork for the Verve's debut studio album, a storm in heaven. That image represents the recklessness of youth and the idea was if there's a car on fire on your front garden you get it put out sharpish mm. but because they're younger they don't care they're oblivious to it that was the kind of idea. Gives a great pleasure to welcome to the studio a man who not only created some of the most iconic British record sleeves of recent decades but he also went on to win the Lifetime Achievement Award by the Global Annual Design Awards people in 2011 for his catalogue of work as a whole. Uh, Brian Cannon, welcome to the Humans of Excess Manchester. Hello Clint. Nice to see you. You too mate. 
And it's, it's nice to have a, a Wigan accent on the uh, on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've still got it, I suppose. Still got it. So yeah. let's start at the beginning. You you were born in Wigan, weren't you, back in 1966? Well, uh, Omskirk, which is near enough, I suppose. And I was adopted into a family in Wigan. I'd spent all my formulative years there. Basically grew up in Wigan. Have you got any, any images of that sort of childhood? What was it like? Was it a smoky, black and white town back then? Uh, nah, this was the 70s, I suppose. So, you know, that's a just generic northern working class town, I guess. That's kind of upbringing. I think all the smoky chimneys had finished by then, hadn't they? And it was still the tail end of the mining. Uh, oh, yeah, so, you, yeah. so your dad was a miner, wasn't he? He was, but not, not when I was a child. That was much earlier during the Second World War. I mean, he's old, my dad. He's still with us. He's 93 now. Wow. Yeah, but he was working as a coal miner during the Second World War, so he, he didn't actually go to war. The pits was a reserved occupation. It's a job that women couldn't do or weren't allowed to do. So, yeah, he worked on the coal mine then and, um, you know, did all kinds of jobs, uh, cotton mills, coal mines, wound up as a, working in an engineering factory in Airdock for the last 25 years of his working life. But he retired early because he had a bad heart. What does he do now? Moans a lot in the, his armchair. <laughs> I spend wow, every weekend with him, so I'm gonna. I'm I'm adding off there afterwards to see him tonight. So yeah. it'll be the usual how, how how rich everybody is and how skinty is. That's yeah. the basic core of it. Does he ever say to you when are you going to get a proper job? Uh, he's given up with that one. Now. <laughs> I, th- I think he realizes I'm actually. I have managed to make a living out of it. Yeah. But no, to be to be fair though. He was always he always championed the artistic career because he was an astonishing illustrator, was my dad. I mean, incredible, far better drawer than I am. Have you still and, got his work? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, and but you can imagine opportunities for uh, illustrators in Wigan in the nineteen forties were rather limited. Yeah. So he didn't, didn't have a chance to do it. So he always encouraged me because he saw that I had a talent when I was little to go into the artistic career. So it wasn't like, well, you know, this into proper job. Mm-hmm. I think he was glad that I did it and he, whilst he never had the chance. So he definitely inspired you and... Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, just watching him draw when I was very... Well, I'll tell you how little I was when I first saw him doing it. I didn't understand the concept of a pencil and a piece of paper, so it's pre-school. Do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I saw him you know, just draw a very childlike drawing, like a fireman, I remember him drawing. I was just like, wow, that's amazing. There was yeah. nothing there. And my dad just made this man on this piece of paper. So that's how it all started, really. It's a great thing, art, isn't it? It's incredible, yeah. And music is. What did your mum do? Uh, my mother was a doctor's receptionist. Uh, she worked in Manchester during the uh, after the war period. She worked at uh, Co-op Bank on Balloon Street, I believe it was. Is that right? There is a Balloon uh, Street, yeah. So she was like in secretarial work. And then when she, she moved back to Wigan uh, in the 60s, and worked as a doctor's receptionist, which she loved because she just got all the gossip with all the local people. So. And you got to go straight to the front of the queue. <laughs> yes. If you were poorly. Yes. <laughs> what was the first music that inspired you? Uh, Sex Pistols, punk rock. To say it inspired me is a... I mean, up until that point, I mean, I was 11 in 77 when Nevermind the Bollocks came out. So before that, I was obviously into music, but it was like Bay City Rollers, Donny mm. Osmond, yeah. you know, just... That kind of, I mean, said that I think the sweet are rocking still as yeah. it goes. But they were the kind of bands that I was into. It. Like, I, yeah. I was six years older than you, five yeah. years. But that that glam scene was massive for yeah, us, wasn't it? I loved it. Well, then, well, you know, then to go from that, bang, out of nowhere, literally yeah. out of nowhere, uh, Sex Pistols came along and turned everything on its head. And it was what it did for me was uh, I thought I've got to get into this, but I realised pretty sharpish I couldn't play anything. So, Rockstar idea was out the window. So mm-hmm. I thought I'll marry together my love of art and drawing, which my dad had put me onto, uh, and get involved that way. And therefore, you know, I thought sleeve designing. And that was inspired me by um, 
Jamie Reid, Sex Pistols, graphics. Yeah. And I think the whole punk thing in general demystified the whole music industry process, didn't it? Up until yeah. punk, it was very much, uh, not necessarily middle class, but it was not attainable to the man in the street. It was uh, this, rock stars were Martians. They, yeah. they weren't normal people. And, and the whole industry that surrounded it was shrouded in mystery, really. And I think what punk did was demystified that and mm. gave the, the man in the street a crack at it. And that's what I think was the important thing about punk, other than the music, obviously. And before that, record sleeves were always things that cost tens of thousands of pounds and uh, big artists creating them, like the hypnosis people and that. And then suddenly it was just bits of paper cut up and there's your sleeve. Fantastic. Yeah, and, you know, I think... Um, well, it was the birth of the indie label as well, wasn't yeah, it? So yeah. everything was kind of done on a shoestring budget, that whole DIY ethos. Yeah. It's ironic, actually, what I just said about uh, it went from that, you know, tens of thousands of pounds <laughs> to bits of paper. Because ultimately, you ended up creating yeah, modern-day equivalents yeah. of those. I thought, well, I know what you're, like the Be Here Now sleeve, I can't possibly imagine that a record, any record sleeve could have cost that much. Amazing. It was ridiculous. I mean, I mean, ridiculous. I did a... I jotted down some figures recently, and I think, and bear in mind, this is 20, 20 years ago. It was over 75 grand when everything had been accounted for. For a photograph. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. £75,000. We'll come back to that era in a minute, but mm. first of all, back to, you went to art college and you ended up in Leeds Poly. Yes. This seems to be a recurring theme on uh, the podcast, The Humans of Excess Manchester. A lot of people seem to have um, gone to art college and had that that road to Damascus moment where everything changes. Is that what happened to you in Leeds? Uh, no, unfortunately, it was quite the opposite, to be honest. I had my road to Damascus conversion uh, years before when i come across the Sex Pistols. Right. What happened was when I got to Leeds, I thought I was going to have this amazing creative outburst experience. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was probably one of the best times in my life because there was, there was no fees. Uh, I got a full grant. It, it was amazing. The first year of that course was a disaster because I was imagining it being quite forward thinking and creative and allowing you to express yourself. But if anything, they just reined you in. They wanted me to design fish finger packets and wine labels and stuff like that. And I thought, this is the exact opposite of what I want to do. And I got threatened with expulsion on a couple of occasions. But as I, as I progressed through the course, I just kind of, I just almost treated it like a, an open university course and just worked from home. And there's a couple of tutors, more in the illustration department, who I didn't really have much to do with, to be honest, who saw a bit of potential in me and convinced the others uh, to let me remain. Uh, so it was a bit of a battle, but in the end, it was great. And the whole experience, you know, I was 19, I'd never lived away from Wigan before, let alone in a big city on my own or with a mate of mine. Uh, I'm still in touch with Paul from Nottingham. You know, we had this great flat and it was just, it was a fantastic time. And this is the early 80s? Mid to late, 85 to 88. Okay. I was there. So there's a quite a big music scene starting to happen in Manchester around then, wasn't there as well? There was. I mean, well, I mean, I think there always has been in Manchester. I mean, it was during that time I first went to the Hacienda. That would have been '87, I think. Oh, yeah. the, the Zumba nights. That was '87, was it? When there weren't many, many people in there. But no, I always thought that Manchester had um, a scene unlike anywhere else, really. You came down for the Hacienda. Any other venues that you used to come down to or gigs that you remember seeing around that Conspiracy, era? Conspiracy, I was in at that oh, time yeah. a lot, which was a rumble do, wasn't it? Yeah, a little, uh, I remember that. I've got photographs of the front of it. It was a rumble to do, was that? Conspiracy. Um, <laughs> rumble to do. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> I like that. Um, That'd be a good strap line for that era in general in Manchester. Yeah. It were a right rumble to do. It were though, wasn't it? You oh, were, yeah. Were there. I were um, there, man. I were there. Uh, what else? Not as rum as some of the others that, that were down there, but. Well, I was living in Leeds, weren't I? So I, uh, even though it wasn't that far, I was kind of immobile. I didn't have a car or anything. I think I had a Vespa, but I didn't fancy riding over Pennines on it. Um, 
So yeah, I see Ender, Conspiracy. Uh, I was knocking about in Leeds a lot, obviously. But I was just just trying to crack getting through that course, really, and then get on with that. And after that, I moved to London. And you knew exactly, even while you were doing that course, you wanted to design record <laughs> sleeves, didn't you? Yeah, specifically. That's why I was gutted that I was having to design fish finger packets because I just didn't see the relevance. And they were trying to instill upon me, no, 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 this is a discipline that might come in handy later. <laughs> so, well, I can't really see it myself, you know. And I was right, you know, they, they, they weren't teaching me anything. I don't recall being taught anything on that. Cause this is quite a, a dramatic statement to make, but it's true. I don't re recall being taught anything on that degree course that was actually any good to me. I What it did do for me was give me the ability to just express myself when I was allowed to. And and ultimately, when I passed it, it gave me the confidence because I thought, well, I must be doing all right because I've got a degree. Because this was back in the day when it wasn't that normal for working class lads to have degrees, really, you know. Mm. Yeah, it was a great time of basically gearing up for the next phase because I'd met Greg Wilson uh, before I went to college mm -hmm. and I was working professionally whilst I was still at Poly with the Rap Assassins Kermit setup and yeah. his sister outfit Kiss AMC. And I remember actually, you know, do you remember John Fox who's been Ultravox? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came and gave a lecture at our college one he time. He was from what you were wasn't he? From Charlie. Charlie, right. Yeah. He's he's uh, <laughs> have you, have you, he's he cracks because he's like he's quite rugged looking and he's got his debonair air about him and then he opens his mouth he's got a Charlie accent. <laughs> I remember back in the well the, the new wave he was yeah. then, but he's very um, quite sophisticated as a performer and yeah, a, a, a singer. But then he'd be like yeah, yeah. broad as anything when he's, he talks. No, he's great, he's John. But but and the questions at the end were. Uh, you know, he's thrown up to questions. You give this amazing speech, and rather than me asking many points about design, I literally because I was in the middle of doing some work for the rap assassins who were assigned to AMI, and I hadn't the faintest clue what to charge. And I thought, if I asked the record company that, they're going to sell like ten bob or something, aren't they? So mm. you know, so my question was, how much do I charge? And the answer, of course, was, how long's a piece of string? You know, so it was. But he gave me some pointers, and uh, that was the start of my professional career. So you know, working with Manchester bands right from the off. So those were your first jobs. That was one of my questions. What was the first like sort of paid jobs that you got out of the uh, out of the designing? Well, the first record sleeve I ever did was actually for uh, a girl called whose stage name was Tracy Carmen, who was Greg Wilson still is Greg Wilson's partner, right. and they they put that out themselves on a little independent label from Liverpool called Infrastructure. But the first uh, work for what you call a you know like a proper label was Rap Assassins and Kiss AMC who went through the syncopate label, which was EMI, which was an amazing buzz, really, because you think about it, I'm still at college at this point, and I'm having creative meetings at Manchester Square, where the Beatles used to put their records out. I was like, wow, <laughs> weren't expecting this so quick. <laughs> uh, and then it kind of went downhill for a couple of years, but, you know, that was a great start. So it's about the moment, then, you're in a lift somewhere, I assume, in Manchester, yeah. and a young lad steps into the lift with you and you start comparing training shoes. Yeah. And it was a moment that changed your life pretty much, wasn't it? Pretty much, yeah. That was in, I'll tell you what it was, uh, New Mount Street. Yeah, where the Inspirals had an office. Yeah, where indeed I met you. Because you did some work for the Inspirals. And I this did is what quite a bit to... of work for the Inspirals uh, before I got to doing that other band's work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, so that started because, well, I've been in London because I know, you know, these, the Tony Wilson was... was probably my favourite all-time Mancunian, ranting on about, oh, you don't have to be in London, you know, you, we, we proved it, we've got factory. But for a job in graphic designer doing what I was doing at that time, I did have to be in London because I wasn't doing anything for factory and other than factory, I know there's other bits and bobs, but it was all London-based and because there was no internet, you had to be within striking distance of your, of your client to drop artwork off and all the rest of it. So I had to be in London until 
Uh, the Hacienda started really taking off in 89. And I found myself in Manchester every weekend going to that club. So I just thought, I moved to Manchester. You know, it saved me going up and down the M6 every week. Um, so I got a flat in Wally Range. And I obviously then got some premises. I say obviously got some premises. I had a, what, I had a single room in Newmount Street. It was the cheapest room I could get in there. There was no windows in it, which is kind of the antithesis of what you'd expect of a creative studio to be. It was like being in a dungeon. But it was 20 quid a week, and it was all I could afford. Uh, and I didn't have a computer of it. I just had a photocopier, which I used to do on my, my Pistols-esque artwork on. And that's how I bumped into Nolan, ultimately you. And that leads us on to probably one of the most colourful chapters of your life, really, the next few years, because you were, you were on board that Oasis machine right through the the turmoil as well as the you know the more yeah. celebrated stuff was it was it an enjoyable ride was it painful at times uh i don't necessarily think it was ever painful it was a bit surreal at points the best bit as i'm sure anybody in a band will tell you is the bit when it just starts taking off it's really exciting and you go from being completely skint to everybody's got a few bob they're not rich yet but you know you're the darlings of the enemy. You're not necessarily noticed in the street yet, but, you know, you're happening band and you're taking off. That is the best bit, I think. And it was for the case of the Verve as well. And that's when... That's before anything's gone wrong, isn't it? Before any, you know, anybody freaked out or... You know what I mean. And they were great. That was, So that would have been 93, 94. But it happened so fast with Oasis. See, just yeah. by 95, 96, he'd just gone stratospheric. I mean, I remember... I had a flat in Camden, which was Noel Gallagher's old flat. And then when he got the, when the royalty checks came through and he bought Supernova Heights, I moved into his old flat in Camden, having lived on my office floor for three months. And Liam used to hang around with us at this point because he knew that we weren't going to bubble him up to the press. We weren't going to sell any stories. We were mates. So he used to come in my flat on a Friday night and we'd just get hammered and stay all weekend. And then it was come Sunday, when we'd go and get some breakfast or something. And we'd be walking down Parkway in Camden and, it was beyond our day's night Beatlemania. It was mayhem. You know, just the sight of Liam Gallagher would create carnage. P people crashing the cars into backs of buses and falling off bikes and women dropping the shopping and screaming. I've never seen nothing like it. Happens to me every day, Brian. <laughs> but alongside of that, though, I did feel at the time there was, how can I put it, you know, you just thought, this is just, it's not, it wasn't quite real. I mean, I don't know what it was like for them because I wasn't the eye of the hurricane. I was just a, the periphery of it, I suppose. But it's just, that, that level of madness, it's tinged with, it's just unreal, isn't it? You know, it's not quite right. It's, this, this can't be right. You know, that kind of vibe going on. What were the worst moments in the, in that era? Nothing bad per se happened to me, you know. On the contrary, I made a good living out of it. Well, you've seen Supersonic, obviously. You know, when the, when the fight kicked off at um, Rockfield Studios, I mean, that was pretty. That was heavy. That you mm. know, that was heavy. Physical violence. That and you did you witness that? Oh, I was there. Time, yeah, 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 yeah. I was there. <laughs> I was there. In fact, Liam came back to my house in Wigan with a broken hand the following day. But you know. If that's as bad as it gets, I think we're doing all right, to be honest. Yeah. You know, nobody was hospitalised. Nobody had drug overdoses. Nobody, you know what I mean? Nothing really, really bad happened. The brothers had a fight. Rock and roll, wasn't it? Yeah. 
We'll talk more about Oasis in a minute. Let's talk about the Verve. You met Ashcroft when he was 19, so before he was uh, in, in the band? What? Probably a bit younger than that, actually. Probably about 17, actually. Right. At a party in Wigan. Did he look like a rock star then? I bet he did, didn't he? Well, he, he did. As he, he, I, don't, I don't know if I'd go as far as to say rock star, but he certainly had a... He, wasn't, he didn't look like the rest of the kids in the school, if you, you see what I mean. And not so much just a look, because you know anybody can pull a look off. Not anybody, but there was an aura to him as well, which mm. went beyond... And you know how it works. When you're of a certain age, a kid who's five or six years younger than you, when you're that age, anyway, you know, I was, how old would I be? I was 23, he mm. was 17, something like that. So that's a big difference when you're that age, isn't it? Yeah. So to be impressed by a kid at that age, I think that's quite something, to be honest. Yeah. You know? Let's talk about some of those uh, incredible images that you created, like uh, like Rolls Royces in swimming pools for being an hour, neon signs in waterfalls for mm. the, uh, that was This Is Music, when it, exploding cars, storming heaven. These are what you've become defined by these amazing pieces of art. Mm-hmm. Where, where did that start, that idea of creating that? Was it going back to the old Pink Floyd sort of stuff? I'm a massive fan of hypnosis, but it only became so after the event because everybody kept, wow, this, you must be into hypnosis. I'm not, I don't really know. I was, you know, I was, my musical history was basically all of sex pistols. That mm. was it. You know, I didn't know anything beforehand. I wasn't looking back. Uh, and I only started doing when people started bringing up that, those comparisons to uh, what the hypnosis guys had done. But it's such an unusual approach on it to create that environment. You know, at one extreme, it's just Bonehead's front room, but some of the stuff you did with the waterfalls with the electric lights in it, yeah. pretty left of centre thinking, that, isn't it? Well, yeah, but the thing was, I... It, it, I no, you put it like that. I like blowing a car up next to the Verve. Yeah. What made you think about that? Well, the, <laughs> the, 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 that's the Verve's first... Everything had a... There's a rhyme and reason to be to, to all of it, and it all, in every case, started with the music or the lyrics, or the band's persona. And what I was trying to do was visually represent. I always find it easier to do singles because there's one specific track mm. that you're dressing, one set of lyrics, one tune. With an album, it's more of a concept. It's a broader concept, if you like. But that blowing a car up, the whole idea to that was the Verve's first album. It's, the vinyl version of that, I still think, is the best piece of work I've ever done. Uh, and it's the it's the journey of life, starting the birth, the beginning. That image represents the recklessness of youth. And the idea was, if there's a car on fire on your front garden, you get it put out sharpish. Mm. But because they're younger, they don't care. They're playing chess and reading a newspaper, and they're, they're oblivious to it. That was the kind of idea. But and it looks very serene and calm, does that? But that Citroen car, which I bought from a scrapyard for sixty quid and drove to the site, <laughs> was really on fire. And we, to do that, we doused it in petrol and lit it. You had a split second to photograph it before the heat became so overpowering that the band had to run out the shot. Yeah, and the car would explode fully. Well, well, we we weren't completely stupid. We we drilled holes in the fuel tank, which I guess in the first place is kind of dangerous because a spark is set. <laughs> but we did that. We drilled holes in the fuel tank and flushed out with water. And then, do you know Dave Alliwell? He used to manage him. Met him a few times, but never really got to know him that well. He was 17 when he got him signed. He was amazing, Dave. Dave had the job of dousing the car with the petrol. So what he did was he put it all on the ins- all the seats, the first time at the full lot, and we wound down one of the windows in- through which he was going to have the stick with a rag on the end, doused in petrol again, which he lit, which he was going to put in the car and light the, light the fire with, right? And of course, uh, had we been thinking about this, there's only one window open, so the full blast of that car ignited is going to come back through that window. And indeed it did, it 
burnt all his hair off and blew him off his feet. And he's on fire on the floor. But of course, I know we've only got one shot at this. We can't go get another car. We're skint. We got shoot it now. Get the shot. But Dave's writhing around the floor in agony. But the, the photograph looks amazing in the end, and I'm sure Dave got over the burns pretty quick. Can you remember the Bornheads front room shoot? So the cover of one of the most iconic British albums ever. Uh, probably never be beaten. And it's uh, Oasis in Bornheads front room at the time. Tell us how that came about, and was it all planned out beforehand on bits of paper, etc.? Yes, it was. Well, what happened was, I'd, I'd come up with the idea that it's the first album, should be a band shot, and then I thought, well, they're not, you know, they're not your typical band, these lot. And I'd noticed in press shots, they didn't really like having the picture took, and they weren't comfortable being told what to do in pictures, which I can totally understand. And what I, the idea I thought would be, uh, cool. Would we do an anti-band shot? We'd have a band on the front cover, but rather than posing like in some sort of soppy rock band, they were just watching the telly, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, and that idea, I'd kind of, I'd, I'm a massive Beatles fan, and if you look at the album Oldies but Goldies, which is an official release, I think on the front it's got like a an Art Nouveau. Do you know the one I mean? It's got a, but on the back there's a shot of them in a, a dressing room in Japan. It's a fly-on-the-wall shot of George. Ringo's leaning over, he's got a cig in his mouth. It's very, very fly-on-the-wall. I just thought, wow, that's an amazing picture of the Beatles. And a really unusual shot, I thought, mm. to put on an album, an official album at that. So it's the kind of those two things mixed together. I wanted a really sort of casual, fly-on-the-wall type shot with them showing that they just don't give a hoot uh, and they're watching the telly as opposed to posing. Yeah. Now, despite the fact that people think we just literally turned up and photographed them, I was in the Bonez flat in with Bonez's wife, sitting in different positions, being photographed. One of which was me lying on the floor, right? Which Liam then saw, and that's how that came about. Despite the other rumours you might have heard, Liam just saw me in a test shot lying on the floor and thought it looked cool. So that's why he adopted that pose. But everything else was meticulously planned. Uh, even down to the the still on the f telly is is freeze framed on a VHS, and it's a still from the good, the bad, and the ugly. And all the props around the room are all they weren't there. Well, I think the flamingo on the mantelpiece and bits like that were, but the George Best, Rodney Marsh, Bert Baccarat picture all were from Phil Smith and Mark Coyle's house. Um, the Rodies. Yeah, uh, Rodian sound guy yeah. from their from their house including the, the inflatable globe that was dangling from the ceiling. And so basically when we got there, it was very quick. And rather than being portrait session, if you like, it was almost like a still life, you know, because yeah. we knew where everybody was going to be. A lot of your work is, your, your more famous work is still life, isn't it? Yeah, Pretty exactly. Much. And with, with the odd exploding car. Well, yes. And uh, well, do you know, that's funny you should mention the exploding car because... I was, I'm was. i offering a bit of a tangent here. I hope that's okay. Yeah, it's fine. That's what it's all about, man. I I did a talk in London the other week and somebody asked the question, are there any ideas that you've had that you've not had opportunity to use on one of these sleeves because you come up with these grandiose ideas? I said, and I'd totally forgot all about it. And during the middle of this speech, it just came back to me in a flash. I said, well, well the way it used to work was I'd run ideas past Noel because that's just the way the pecking order went. You know, he made the decisions. I, I just dealt with him. But I said, but this idea didn't even get as far as the Noel stage. 
I was I ran it by Liam first. <laughs> and with the idea, I still think this would be amazing. The idea was we were going to buy this house. And I used to know a guy at the time who was a big Oasis fan, so he'd have helped us out to do it. He was an explosive expert who so worked for ICI. And he told me that you could get enough explosives to demolish a three-storey house for about 50 quid. Right. right. So the idea was we were going to get this, this house, pack it with explosives, and then, have you seen those super high-speed cameras where you, you see like a picture of a bullet going through a playing card? They can literally freeze frame. Well, the, what they do, they don't just take one shot. They took like five seconds worth. There's like 3,000 frames a second, or whatever it might be. Yeah. But what it does then is it freezes any sort of motion. So I thought we'd get this house, we'd blow this house up, and then you just bam it out, and then you pick you might, I think it'll look incredible. This house just... Yeah. Bits fly through there, and then we're just the Oasis logo in the corner. But like I said, Liam just went, You what? I'm obviously not going to swear. This was peppered with uh, expletives. You what? You want me to buy a house so you can blow it up? You can forget about that. You know what I mean? There's an amazing piece of art in Manchester a few years ago at the Whitworth, which was an exploding garden shed. Did you ever see that piece? I didn't, but it that's... was beautiful. It was a garden shed which was actually full of real junk right and then the the woman artist blew it up so basically this this stuff is all suspended in in the air on wires and wow. you can walk around it wow but it sounds like that's the well, idea that, you're yeah, well, that's the kind of idea what uh, what single piece of work that you've created would you like to be remembered by if there's one piece that you know when when it's news at 10 and you've passed away oh and gosh. there's a brian cannon creator of this right well you know i i think that the verbs first album storm in heaven is probably possibly the best thing I ever do but you know they always have these charts and uh like Q Magazine, top 100 albums of all time and all the rest of it. That Verve album is never in any of them because it didn't sell enough, you know, because that, that's another thing as well. You've got to take it with a pinch of salt. The best album sleeve of all time isn't necessarily the best album sleeve of all time. It's the best album sleeve of a famous album. Are you with me? Yeah. Um, but definitely, maybe, I think, you know, Love Them or Hate Them, I think they were a bigger phenomenon than the Sex Pistols were in day-to-day British life. They're the biggest phenomenon in this country since the Beatles. There's no doubt about that. And to have designed their debut album sleeve, well, a few of them after as well, but their debut album sleeve, and it is a cracker as well. So, yeah, I'd have to go for definitely, maybe. Plans for the future, then? What are you working on next? Uh, Well, it's it's a funny one, is that, actually. It's a bit of a crossroads at the minute because there's no money in record sleeves anymore. I love my photography. I live up in the lakes now, as we were talking about earlier, and I do a lot of landscapes and mountain climbing a lot. What am I looking for? I don't know. I'm I'm looking for uh, a scheme to make me rich before I can't work any longer. Because <laughs> with the creating the kind of art you're doing, there's not an ongoing royalty. Like if you had no. written a song or produced it. No, no. Unfortunately, not that that uh, practice was ended in the 70s. I think you know the guy that did the Bat Out of Elsley, he was on a royalty. No, but I mean I've been. Is you know the 90s are very much in vogue. How long that'll last? I don't know. I've been doing a lot of exhibitions, pop up shops. I do a lot of online retail and stuff. You know, there's a book in all this somewhere. You know, there's, there's there's loads of things on the go. What I am doing as well is I'm noticing there's a lot of corporate companies who now have got people in positions to commission. We're big Oasis fans back in the day. So I've just done a massive amount of work for like LinkedIn, for example, and right. stuff like that. You know, it, that's where the money is these days. Tech companies, they've got it coming out of their ear holes. Um, <laughs> it'll always be something creative yeah. and it'll always involve making pictures and designing things because that's what I do but more of the same not necessarily for music that's basically it If I was to say to you who are your favourite humans of Manchester past or present who would they be? Tony Wilson it's got to be on it because not just because of the, the factory 
<coughs> records Hacienda thing. I think a lot of people forget about the fact that first time the Sex Pistols ever played live on television <coughs> was on a regional show out of Manchester that he, mm. he hosted and he, he put them on basically, didn't he? Yeah. So the guy was a visionary, there's no doubt. I, I'm astonished there isn't a statue been erected yet, to be honest. Is that happening? You know? Yeah, I think so because every time, every every podcast, his name always pops up. It's only a matter of time, isn't it? It's, it's got to like, be, hasn't it? It's, the legend's yeah. just getting bigger and bigger. And he put the Sex Pistols on the television. He signed the Happy Mondays and he opened the Hacienda. Three massive things in my life. Yeah. You know? Before you go, Brian, describe Manchester in three words. Uh, not quite Wigan. I'm having that. Brian Cannon, thank you for being a human of excess Manchester. Thank you, Clint, for having. Me. That was Brian Cannon. Make sure you join us next week where I'll be speaking to award-winning Manchester chef Mary Ellen McTague. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to Humans Excess Manchester. Rate us if you like it. Feel free to leave us a comment. We always like to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.